0: Good evening, you're listening to Throughs Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today is Mohawk Games founder, Soren Johnson. Soren, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob, good to be here. So today we're going to be talking about your debut game with Mohawk, correct? And after a lengthy time in early access, I think we did our first show on this uh, well over a year ago. Uh, you're finally bringing out a finished product that is quite a bit different from from what we originally talked about uh, on the show all those all those ages ago, uh, Soren. You know, catch us up a little bit. How has how has Off Trading Company sort of evolved and changed? uh since we played what what now almost looks like a prototype right
1: yeah um i mean it's been it's been a long journey i guess if you look back we've actually spent over half well no just about exactly half of our development cycle has been on early access so the people who bought in right away you see basically what a game looks like halfway through um and although that's perhaps even that's a little misleading because we wouldn't have polished even that early prototype it still got sort of a polished pass before we put it out on early access, just because like it'd be really crazy to just send people just, this is just your prototype, go buy it. Right. So we actually had to spend some time to kind of like make it look reasonable. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what a game can, can look like halfway through a process where, you know, you kind of see the basic, the basic ideas. And, um, I think the telling part was that, um, even though a lot has changed kind of the core thing that was fun then that's fun now was still fun then right like i think you can right. still see where the game was going that way back then and you you even, you even saw it earlier right like you saw it maybe 3 or 4 months before we came out on early access uh
0: um, yeah i think I, I think so i think we we saw it before it was publicly on early access at least i i think it yeah. launched through steam but i'm not sure you could buy it through steam
1: right so so yeah we actually were selling it about two years ago when we'd only really been working on it for maybe nine months. Um, and then we kind of, sh- we shipped it to people to play basically kind of like a private beta. Uh, and that's what you saw. So you, you saw it even before really like that, that initial polish, pa- polish pass. Um, but yeah, the, so the part that has never really changed um, during the process of once it was out in public. Um, although I'm, I've written up some di- designer notes on the game, uh, where I go into detail about how initially the game was actually, you actually could control units um, and like initially, like you didn't have a headquarters and uh, there was just a whole lot of things about the game that work, you know, really fundamentally differently. Um, but um, you know, that when we launched early access, the core part that has never really changed was that concept of like, okay, you found a headquarters, um, you claim tiles, you have limited number of, of claims, which is kind of like your most limiting factor um, you know, make some buildings, and then you know, most importantly, you have this free market of uh, prices. Uh, you have free market of resource prices that go up and down depending on what players do, and that's basically how you uh, do do well or do poorly at the game is figuring out how to read that market. Um, but since we went out on early access, you know, it's hard for me because I, I kind of feel like the frog that got boiled, right? Like, okay, I, you know, if. If you showed me the version back in February of 2015, you'd be like, oh, wow, look at all this stuff that's different. But like, it's like everything, there's been kind of like an important change like every month or two, but it's hard for me to remember all of them in detail. I, okay. I mean, one thing that sticks out in my mind is um, like the black market has changed significantly mm-hmm. in that when we released in Early Access, we had the black market was always the same thing, right? It was always this set of six or seven items, right? It was always the EMP, the power surge, uh, dynamite, underground nuke, mutiny, bribe, clan, goon squad. Um, it was always those seven things. Um, and a few months after we came to early access, I wanted to. I, I basically it was like, you know, we still have some design time left with this game. I want to. I want. I want the game to be as variable as possible. Like that's one of my high-level goals for the game. That like, you know, I really want the, the matches to play it very differently. And we got random maps what about having a random black market, right? Um, And so now we have, there's about 20 different items that can show up on the black market. Um, And you have some things that, you know, are really very, very different. Like there's like the hologram, which lets you actually disguise some of your buildings. Um, And then of course the spy that sort of counters the hologram. And um, there's really weird ones like the network virus, which basically like traps someone's building so they can't turn it off. Um, And that's a... That's a that's a neat neat building if like you see someone who's you know has some buildings that they probably should delete because they're not actually being very profitable and you like you hit them with a network virus and then like if they're a steel mill, you buy up a bunch of iron, right, to drive the price of iron up, which makes those buildings even more unprofitable, right? Um and uh um what else do we have? we had the mule, which is like this kind of neat little neat little unit that runs out, it'll mine resources from places you don't have to claim and the main the main thing is that we had all this different variety and then each game we pick from that deck six or seven different items, right? So your strategy couldn't be built based around the idea of like, okay, every game I like to use the mutiny to do this or every game I like to bribe claims right off the bat to do this, right? Like, well, now, now it changes. Now, every time the game begins, you have to both look at the map and then also look at the black market to see what is or isn't available. Um, another, another big thing that changed was the reveal map mode. Um, which was something that um, was really asked for um, by our hardcore community um, okay. in the, the hardcore mar- multiplayer community. In that you're
0: talking about that opening stage where you're sort of scanning the map. Yes. Okay.
1: Um, so, have you played the, with? Have you seen the reveal map? I don't remember what you played when you were um, when you came by. Uh,
0: I was playing so. I, I've not played with it, like a fully a fully revealed map where from the first minute right. it's it's all exposed. No, I've not played that mode.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you guys are probably just doing the the normal scanning. Yeah. Um which I think is totally fine for people if they, you know, if they are comfortable doing that in multiplayer. Yeah. Um but for people who are who are playing like you know hundreds of games on mult in multiplayer, they begin to feel that the issue is if, there's, uh, if, there's, if this map has one great founding location, and then it basically feel like the game basically comes down to, well, who finds that location first while they're scanning, right? Which is not really something you have a lot of control around. Like one person might start scanning to the east, and another person might scan to the west, right? And that's just kind of how it goes. Um, and I actually think that it's not, it's not quite as bad as the, the community thought it was, because there's lots of other advantages and disadvantages to founding first or second or later Mm -hmm. uh if you found later you get some extra claims and you get access to the black market earlier and so there's already a bunch of trade-offs built into the system but there was definitely a perception of unfairness so you know really the only way you know i didn't know how to make the game work where the map just started revealed but i was like well that seems like the only that seems like the place you have to start with for this this community Right, is to say, like, okay, we're just going to reveal the whole map and see what happens. And of course, you know, initially that totally doesn't work, right? Now the map is revealed, and now it's just whoever literally sees the best spot founds first, right? So what we added was a a reverse auction, basically, that when the map starts revealed, um, you see at the top of the screen, it'll say $200,000 debt. And what that means is if you found now, you're going to get $200,000 in debt. And that number just starts ticking down every second. Oh, okay. So what you'll basically see is, you know, people will look around and then they'll like, okay, there's a good spot here, there's another good spot here. Okay, that's a great spot, but how much is it worth to me? Is it worth 50,000 debt? Is it worth 40,000? Is it worth 30,000? Right? And right. like everyone kind of comes up with their own answer. Um and kind of the the quote-unquote winner, right, is the person who, you know, jumps first, right? Um and it's also it's it's not actually that once once you get good at the system, you realize it's not actually about how good the spot is, the best spot on the map is. The really important question is how good is the second best spot, right? Because, yeah, um, yeah okay, that spot's amazing. You take it for $40,000 in debt, fine. But if the there's another spot, which is really not that much worse, well, then if one player starts with $40,000 in debt and the other player starts out with zero debt, that's a huge difference, right? So um, sometimes you'll actually see um, people if they if that map opens and there's there's like enough good spots for everyone they'll wait for the debt the the counter to get all the way to zero and then actually it'll start counting up so there's oh. actually a founding bonus right um we actually saw this like directly in one of our tournaments we had uh two v uh, no two V2. we had a one v one tournament uh and we got all the way to the finals without running into this problem but we had this one game where you know these two players, who are some of the absolute very best players, started, and there was a map that had these two amazing spots, and it was just like this complete standoff, right? The number got to zero, and no one founded, and then everyone's like, "Well, what happens now?" Uh, because both of them wanted to found second to get right. the extra claim, right? And so, yeah, so that's so that's then we had to start adding the bonus. Um, So these are these are two things that stand in my mind as some of the big things that have changed. I could also go into the, the uh the stock system. That is also that's probably the the one core system that has com- changed completely from the way it was when we first launched because it used to be that when you bought someone out you actually got all of their stuff um and you would kind of slowly right. absorb everyone across the whole map
0: yeah It very much it very much felt like in those early editions that um like the runaway victory problem was huge yeah. uh in those early editions cuz once somebody acquired a halfway like even a, even a bad player's holdings still gave you such an Unbelievable resource buff that it was kind of impossible to stop you.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so there, there were basically two problems we were trying to solve by changing the stock system to what I guess you would you call now the subsidiary system, um, which is that when a player gets taken over, they kind of like they get basically get turned over to an AI that kind of like plays the game basically just to make money. It's not really involved in the game, meaning it doesn't use the black market. It doesn't bid on auctions. It doesn't buy stock. It's like kind of a, you know, it's a subsidiary, right? Um, And there were two problems we we're trying to solve. One was the, you know, the runaway winner problem that you mentioned. Um, The second was, and this was kind of a personal thing, personal thing, or what's the, this is, this is a bit subjective, but there were a lot of people who did not like the fact that when they bought someone out, they suddenly had all this new stuff to take care of that they they hadn't basically placed themselves. And it was just kind of like, total overload. Um, And if you're playing like six or eight player games, it really got pretty crazy. Um, And so our solution was a subsidiary system, which, you know, first of all, because the AI takes over and just runs the company for you and will send you, excuse me, basically basically what it does is it sends you 1% of their cash every second. So it's just this like slow drip feed of their money. Um, So that handled the problem of like people, players being like overloaded. Um, but it solves the runaway problem, or at least made it better um, by allowing for essentially split ownership, right? Mm-hmm. In that, um, I mean, the the easiest way to point this to explain this would be like think of a three player game, right? Um, you have player A, B, and C. At some point, someone's going to get bought, right? And under the old system, let's say a player A buys player C. Okay, now it's essentially two to one, right? Like there's one player who has who is literally twice as big as the other player, right? And it's, it's almost impossible to balance that out. Like, you might as well just end the game as soon as right. the first buyout happens, right? But now under the subsidiary system, it's, it's possible essentially for player A and B to both take over half of player C. So player C gets turned into a subsidiary, but that player's stock is split 50-50 between the other two players and is basically giving cash at the same rate to both of the other players, Right. Um and sometimes sometimes it might be 60-40 or it might be 70-30, but there's you know, there's at least the possibility that like you could have a somewhat even split and you know the game can continue and the the person who you know it's it's just not all it's not all or nothing, right? The person who got the buyout isn't just gonna just completely steamroll everyone else. So you know, the other day
0: we were talking about uh Twilight Struggle, actually, on the show and julian you know we were talking about what what sort of board games we'd we'd want to see come over to pc uh and also whether or not you could see more games on the pc that that look like board games and and julian brought up off world uh actually straight away he was like you know in my, well in my opinion uh soren's already done that basically uh and it's interesting because i think you know when the when the game was first announced and I was, I was working at PC Games then, uh, at, the, at the time, and I was sort of getting a lot of the, the PR uh, information as, as well as talking to you about the game. And it was interesting, it was very much framed as this, uh, you know, it's an RTS, but without the combat, uh, it, it, which, which was true. But I think the more time has gone by, the more like playing in a multiplayer setting in particular makes it feel uh, like a board game. Uh, feels a lot like a a worker placement and and trading game uh that you know I, I, that seems a lot more akin to stuff you find on on table in, in the tabletop space than you necessarily find on pc where business simulators uh tend to be pretty pretty baroque right like it's games like patrician which are which are just all about like uh optimizing. You know, market movements and and production, but that's all very like ship in a bottle, uh, type like business creation. This feels a little, a little faster, a little looser, and a little more competitive. Uh, but it definitely, I, I definitely understood where where Julian was coming from, saying that to him it feels much more akin to something in the tabletop space than the PC.
1: Yeah, yeah. We usually use the RTS comparison because that's that's basically the best comparison you can make on the PC. Like, I think that it is totally accurate to say that this is a game that kind of really does slot into that, you know, we could sit down and play, you know, we could play Settlers of Catan for, you know, an hour or two or we could play a few games of Offworld, right? Yeah. Like, probably the, the group of people who would enjoy one would probably enjoy the other, right? Um. Like, it's just, there are, there are so few other P- PC games that you could say that about, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure of really any that aren't like literal board game ports right um so uh so yeah i mean usually we talk about rts games for that reason and that we kind of we feel like we need to make a, a an analogy that makes sense to you know the, the general gaming audience right um and it is i mean it it is an RTS. It's just you know, it just doesn't have that whole combat stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's it is you know. I've been struggling you know since the beginning of this project figuring out exactly what's the right way to describe it or pitch it.
0: I, I think I remember is you know when when I was down there in in Maryland, sort of on my way out the door, you you sort of slapped your forehead and, and uh, actually called back to something Tom's fond of saying, which is that Mobas blew up because they took the RTS, chopped it in half, and took all mm. micro and yep. made a game out of that and what you've done is quite the opposite really you're yep. like what if what if it was just all resource management and right. and not really unit control at all
1: yep oh yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah we're taking we exactly that's right yeah we're taking the macro part of the rts and i'm mean, just kind of crazy the rts's work at all i mean they're, they put such incredible demands on the player right and I, I feel like just like moba's figured out that there's kind of like a whole game there just in the micro i feel like Offworld world shows that there's a whole game there in the macro um, and another, another one of the big reasons why we use the RTS comparison is that I think there are a lot of people who, if they look at at Offworld from a high level without kind of like spending time to look at, you know, some of the gameplay videos or, um, or other information about the game, they probably are expecting the game to look something like Anno. Um, you mm-hmm. know, they, they figure it's going to be that type of a game. And, and that's, that's something like, I really don't want, if, if that's exactly the type of experience that someone was looking for, then, you know, like off world probably is not the right game for them. Right. Like I I have a feeling they might still enjoy off world, but like, especially if they come into it, expecting it to be a totally different type of game. That is kind of like, you know, very leisurely and long form and not really super competitive, um, you know, has kind of more, you know, more of a city builder feel where you're, you know, you're just basically kind of watching your, watching your money rise slowly and, you know, doing, doing your thing. Um, like yeah i mean Offworld is not really that type of a game right like it's it's competitive right and you know rtss are the most competitive strategy the most sort of standard competitive strategy type game out there right so yeah that's kind of why we usually refer to it that way
0: so as, as i've been playing it um you know, I'm I, I'm impressed by by how much more I'm enjoying it now that, that than I was sort of at first. I think it's just because it reads a lot more clearly to me than it, mm-hmm. than it did in the past. Uh, it's right. it, the situational awareness is mm-hmm. is vastly improved. There's a lot of things that sort of give you now a real sense of exactly where you stand with with regard to uh, inputs and outputs. Mm-hmm. So you always have a sense not only of like what your current uh, net you know, in out looks like, but what it will look like if you build this next thing you're considering. Uh, and then also the, the sense of, you know, what's this commodity? What's the, what's this commodity's history, right? Is this a, yeah. is this a price bubble, but some like clearly it's being produced and it's going to collapse real soon because other people are doing it. Uh, or is it on a steady upward trajectory? And used to be like, you had, you would have to basically like go around and stare at everyone's base and like, you know, sort of just basically figure out from that, right, like what, what that market looked like. Now, you know, there's there's little, there's little shaded graphs that, that give you yep. a hint of, of, of what's going on. Uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting to me because it's – I'm just – I'm surprised how well it works in that for a long time I think I struggled with sort of seeing the terrain, as it mm-hmm. were, because this is an RTS, really, where where it's not about terrain necessarily. So, like, what what are you battling over? What do you what are you playing over? Uh, but now, I, I I I think I'm I'm meshing with it a lot more comfortably. In part, it, you know, it, here's the thing: I think early er, when I first started playing it, something I struggled with a lot is the fact that the theme told me like I should be building a business and just sort of taking advantage of. Uh, you know, like race to the finished goods, right? Mm-hmm. And, and right. make profit from those. And I think now I've gotten a lot more comfortable with how it does end up functioning as an RTS, right? Where this is still a game where you're going to have to, you know, parachute into a market, get it while it's hot. And occasionally you're going to have to, you know, change your, complete, com- change your business like two or three times over the course of a match just to make sure you're always getting the largest profits. Uh and it's it's interesting to see how that understanding has shifted now and it's gone from being this really alien concept uh to being something I'm a lot more comfortable with. Uh and and is actually
1: really satisfying to
0: to do well at.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's hard to, you know, if if you were the only player on the map, it would be pretty easy to optimize, okay, this is exactly the right situation for extracting the optimal amount of money and you know, let's just let it let it roll, right? Um and yeah, that's that's what makes the game interesting is that there's someone else out there messing with the market at the same time as as you are, um, and it's um, it's great to be able to take advantage of the fact that you see someone who's like, man, that guy's way overproducing water, right? And I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm just going to like, I'm just going to instead just build a bunch of farms, right? Yeah. And I'm going to be making I'm going to be making the money even if you know that person is basically wake, working for me by selling me water at such a low price, right? Um, and yeah that's that's like the level of understanding you need to get to to, to do well off world.
0: Yeah and, and just all the things that can open up from that kind of interaction, right? Like that still depend like is that person willing to basically tank their own game for a while and just sit on a water stockpile? You know, mm-hmm. like are they are they are they willing to screw you that hard? Are they going to let you sort of, you know, invest in water heavy businesses you know, and then they will simply stop selling to the market. I, I love the sort of, uh, you know, bluffing and, and guesswork that, that goes, on, goes on in this game.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of time real early on the project um, thinking a lot about the whole the adjacency bonuses and, like, how many buildings are sort of the right number of buildings to have um, of each type. Yes. Right. Because, and how many claims you have total, because I, I knew early on that like the one thing I wanted to make sure was never a good strategy was like just building one of every type of building. Right. Like that would lead to a very, a very, very boring game. Yeah. Um, and uh, once, one of the nice thing about being on early access is that I, I, I discovered that I actually had kind of overcorrected that mm-hmm. when we initially released, you got basically a 50% bonus for every adjacent building. So, um if you had like literally a full circle of say steel mills the steel mill in the center would get a 300 bonus right which is just crazy right and so there was a there was a a version i think it might have been beta 2 or beta 3 where um you know kind of a dominant strategy was basically you'd see these players where they would build seven steel mills let it run for like 20 seconds 20 or 30 seconds and then delete them all and then build 20 chemical labs let them run for like 20 or 30 seconds then they build suddenly seven solar panels, right? They would just constantly cycle all their buildings because the adjacency bonuses were so good that, um, you know, you, you know, you, you didn't care about, you know, losing the time you wanted to just be always at maximum maximum production. Um, so that helped me get to the sort of the sweet spot where like the first one you get a 50%, then the second one is yeah. at 75, then 85. And like, it kind of ramps down from there. So the, the most you can get is a hundred. And at that point you're really much better off having, two triangles right mm-hmm. Then it's in you know just fully you know going for all six or seven buildings um and so that was that was that kind of got, got us to the sweet spot where like over the coaster of the game you're probably going to have you know 15 to 20 claims right and if um if you're thinking of your buildings usually in triangles well that means you're probably going to have you know four or five types of buildings you know mix in some of the primary resources a couple of the advanced buildings so that means you know at least a third of the of the market you're not going to have access to Right. And so then it's like, well, now the question is, am I going to lose the game because I've been because I I chose the wrong I chose the wrong resources to skip. Right? So that's that's like a really important decision you make every game is is you know not just what to build, but knowing what resources you're not going to build. So
0: another thing I wanted to talk to you about with this game is the campaign. Yep. Because when I first saw the game, I was kind of curious whether there was going to be a campaign at all. Uh, yep. again it seemed like such a self-contained c- contained board game like structure mm-hmm. that it seemed like it would be very difficult to layer in any any kind of convincing campaign. Right. Uh and you've taken an interesting approach uh and I'm I'm not 100% sold yet but but I'm uh, but I'm having fun. I'm just not sure I'm enjoying it quite as much as the main game. But talk me through like your your approach to this campaign because what the way the campaign works is now your company does have kind of an identity that it doesn't have in the skirmish mode right your your company right. has now limitations that it doesn't that it doesn't have in multiplayer and that basically means that in each scenario you've got to adapt a uh, somewhat a somewhat unmalleable company to different circumstances. And I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, curious how, how you approach this challenge and, and how you how you sort of created uh, this, this this structure for a campaign uh, for Offworld.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we've probably started at the very beginning, which is that, you know, there, there were sort of some high-level goals I had for the campaign right away in that I, I really wanted to make a replayable campaign, um, you know, the type of thing that you would've, you would've seen in like the you know, there was something like this in like Rise of Nations. Um there's there well unfortunately there just haven't been a lot of RTSs that have done replayable campaigns. Um, but you know, there's a few out there, War Game, the Wargame War Game series have had, mm-hmm. had done some that are kind of interesting. Um, but I've also was also, also excuse me. But I was also inspired kind of like by FTL, uh, in the sense that like, okay, this is like this nice say two plus hour experience that's different each time, but you kind of want to play it over and over again to see if you can, you can pull it off. And also there's, um, having these different ships you can go through, uh, the game with really changes how you play, which is kind of how I envisioned the different CEOs. Like there's nine different CEOs you can play as, um, and as you said, each one has their different you know pluses and minuses. Um, so that's kind of like how I looked at, looked at it from an overall level. Um, and also, um i also wasn't afraid to make it like as different from the camp from the regular skirmish as possible i didn't want them just to be like kind of like super skirmishes right like i figured that part of the game is fine you know we should just you know it should just we should just leave it as is you know people there's going to be you know it's really good for multiplayer um you know we built in the daily challenges like this is a this is a great way to play it if you want to just play a skirmish and be able to you know compare your times with other people and you know watch what other people are doing like that's that's a nice way to do that um but if you want kind of like a nice meaty two to three hour single player experience you know that's essentially what the campaign is for i think I, I think where I ran into some
0: frustration and admittedly this this was from a a build not the most recent it's it's mm-hmm. it's a build or two back I had a couple missions where basically my 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 company was so limited in what it could reasonably do mm-hmm. that I ended up basically like I had a choice between like being a subsistence farmer and barely making a profit or becoming some sort of water magnate. But water was so cheaply available that like trying to sort of take over the market based on water was just this uphill slog. And it was, there was a, there was an issue where it was like, man, the, the things my company is good at, the thing the things my firm is good at don't really agree with this this map in this scenario. And sure. it felt sort of like I had like by the time I saw the map and saw the problems I was gonna encounter, yeah. I'd sort of made my choices beforehand and then I felt a little bit hamstrung. But I I will say when I was playing today, I noticed that that did seem mitigated a, a little bit. It didn't seem yeah. like the limitations were as severe as they as they used to be. Uh, in the campaign mode, but but I'm curious how you how you tune this because like the game's meant to work with with all routes open to you, yeah. Um, and this is definitely doing doing something a little different. Right now, you have to play. It's cool that you sort of have to play now with thinking about your strengths and what you've invested in and and what your what you know what your um what your production scaffold will look like. But it also yeah. imposes uh, challenges. Because it clashes a little bit with the design.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think a good way to describe to describe what we're trying to do with the campaign is to kind of like give the example of like this one core thing you'll run into a lot with the campaign. Which is that when you start, you know, except for a couple CEOs, for the most part, you don't have any advanced buildings available to you, right? So mm-hmm. you can't build either Patent Lab or the Optimization Center or, a, or an off-road market at all. Um, and, you know, you'll you'll probably want to, like, buy some of those as the campaign progresses. Um, but at the same time, as you're going through the campaigns, every mission and generally you have a choice of, a, you know, three missions more or less until you get closer to the end. Um, each each of the three missions has both uh, a sort of a random perk that you get if you win the mission mm-hmm. and then also like kind of like a special effect for that level Um and so those effects can some those the bonuses some can sometimes can be like uh, you know free patent lab right um, and you know you won the mission and suddenly you have a free patent lab and you're like okay well now I should probably figure out what how what's the best thing I can do to take advantage for it of of that of this new you know thing I've got um, but beyond that sort of more more typically so one of the events that's common for these type of missions is that everyone can build a hacker just on this one mission right so like you're at the main you're at the main level of the campaign you're deciding which mission to use and you're like okay for this mission everyone gets to use a hacker array for this mission everyone gets mm-hmm. to use an optimization center um and then there's all these other factors involved as well that might change why you might want to choose one mission or another right like yeah you can see which black market items are available they each, the, each of the colonies is a nationality and if you focus on one of those nationalities you get more you get Extra bonuses like if you, uh, like for I think the Mm. sorry, me off the I know for the Chinese, like if you, if you do, if you win two or three or four uh, Chinese missions, you'll get a larger scanning range, for example. Um, as you go through, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and you know, you also look at like the terrain type, right? Like if you're a robotic and you, which means like you're usually focused on you know iron and metals and things like that, then like a volcanic map is probably pretty good for you, right? Yeah. Whereas if you're expansive and you need lots of water, uh, the lake beds and river beds map. So basically, you know, you have all these different factors to decide which types of missions to choose. But you often might end up in a mission. Well, guess what? On this mission, optimization centers are available. So maybe. When you play the game in skirmish mode, you have a certain pattern, right? Like maybe you like to play scientific and you like to build patent labs and you like to do things a certain way, right? Um, And this is, I think, often a problem in RTS games that have this kind of scale of that they last 20 to 30 minutes, right? Is that you kind of fall into, I think, a rut, if you play these games over, if you're not playing the multiplayer mm-hmm. where there's a human actually challenging you to change your strategies. Um, you know, the AI is going to j- basically be fixed. And at some point, you're going to kind of find figure out that strategy that works really well for you and you're just gonna kind of do it over and over and over again until what generally happens is people get bored with the game, yeah, right? Because there may be a lot more game there they haven't explored, but they found some strategy that works great and they're just going to keep doing it over and over again. They're kind of like, they're sort of ruining the game for themselves.
0: I, I definitely like tend to approach RTS campaigns with sort of like once I identify my sort of stock build, mm-hmm. my 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 standard comp, like I tend to apply it pretty broadly, right? Like yeah. I'll, maybe I'll adapt it from scenario to scenario, but still fundamentally I'll I'll be like, yeah, I lean heavily on, you know, say infantry, yeah. uh, you know, not more infantry than tanks, and then about as many as artillery, as many artillery as tanks. And it, it just you sort of one size fits all strategy and that does get a little rote, a little boring.
1: Yeah. And so that's exactly what we're trying to tackle with the campaign, right? Like, so this one mission optimization centers are available maybe that's something that you rarely build normally, but Hey, it's here. And the other buildings you don't use might be locked off. So like, if you're going to succeed at this mission, you got to figure out what's okay. How do you, what's the best way to actually use this building? Right. I think a really great example would be the hacker. Right. Right. Like I think for a lot of people, it seems like kind of a strange building. They're not really quite sure how to use it. Well, yeah. right. Um, but if it's given to you in the campaign, like, well, you better use all the tools that are available to you. And um, if the other ones are kind of locked off for just this one mission and this one's available, then, you know, it's only the, the game has changed significantly. Um, and, and so, and that's beyond that. Like, so that's why I would, that goes back to the, the CEOs, why the CEOs each have a very different flavor is, is, you know, I'd really encourage everyone to try to, like, beat the campaign one time using each one of the different ones. Um, because, like, you will not, there will not be just one strategy that works for all of them, for sure. So, I, I'm curious now,
0: we, we did a show on, on Early Access uh, with John Schaefer and Tyler mm-hmm. Sigmund of, of Darkest Dungeon. And uh, I remember you, <laughs> I remember you said, uh-huh. you only launch a game once. Yeah, okay. one launch. That's it. It only comes out once. So now, now, now. I. That I'm sounds like what.
1: That sounds like what John said. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I think John. I think John.
0: I think John said I'm never going to release a game. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no launches. John, John said you should never. John said you should never launch. Uh, no, but I feel like I feel like you'd sort of you'd sort of had the idea that like realistically. Yeah. Offworld world gets one chance to really make a splash. And that's kind right. of true of any early access game. Is that, has that view shifted for you at all? Do you like, what are your expectations going into now? The, the formal launch of, of a finished off world.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think about this a lot and I, you know, I, you should, you should ask me in a week. Um, <laughs> okay. I'll have a, I'll have a good answer for you then because yeah, I just, I just don't know. I mean, I do think that, you know, the second launch, so to speak, like I don't think it, 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 it just there's nothing that can compare to like the first time you're like the first time you're exposed to everyone right Mm -hmm. the first time it's the first time it's public on steam first time everyone sees it it's it's new like people are looking for videos on it people are like excited to stream it everyone's talking about it um like that's a that's a kind of a unique moment for every game right um and um i hope that happens again you know we've tried to do what we can to like you know, get the marketing going and talk to press and have some really cool features for like the game, the the new version that's going to, you know, land on Thursday looks significantly different from the one that everyone's playing right now. I mean, the campaign screens are completely new. Like no one, no one out in the public who has, isn't using like one of our private branches has seen that. Right. So there's some, there's some big changes there, but it's still, it's, it's hard to compete with like that, that first day on steam. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm you know, I'm guardedly optimistic, but I don't I don't think we're going to suddenly like double our sales in like the first week or something. Like I I think that would be you know, that would be unrealistic. Um it's been interesting to watch what's happened with Factorio um because I mean, they've they've been doing really really well in early access. Um and it seems like they they really held off longer than they they needed to to go to early access because they've been selling on their own site for I think at least probably a couple of years. Right. Um, And, uh, but it seems like they've been doing totally fine. Um, uh, I mean, more than fine. Right. Like if you look at their, their steam size numbers, they've just been kind of a straight trajectory up. So it, even though that they were uh, publicly available for two years, but kind of like hidden, you know, off steam, like, it seems like, that's a good option for like if you can get enough feedback that way that kind of lets you delay that initial initial bump longer than, than um longer than well it basically it lets you get make sure that your game is as polished as possible before you do that that first big early access splash so um i think that that might be a very good model so one thing that
0: interests me about the entire early access uh, approach to designing and producing a game is sort of the relationship that develops with a games community and particularly its most devoted fans right mm-hmm. uh, because on the one hand they are probably outliers to some extent uh, as far as the you know as far as your your target market is concerned these are probably people who who neatly slot in, uh, to to the type of the type of people who would in, who would enjoy your game. On the other hand, they are the best informed about your game. They are the most mm-hmm. devoted. Uh, they are going to be really sort of parsing these changes. And I know, like it, like in, with Darkest Dungeon, it was sort of striking how much harder that game got at the very end of its time in early access and leading up to launch. Right where where suddenly it was like, no, nope, the the hardcore wants it this hard. We wanted it to be this hard all along. This is kind of what we were, we were building towards. Uh, we're in total alignment there. Newbie's gonna have to suck it up, uh, and I don't think I don't think Offworld is is necessarily that kind of game or 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 approaches uh, approaches itself approaches the pro- the the design with that with that kind of goal in mind. But I am interested in how you sort of weigh the feedback of a community that's sort of playing the game almost as much as the de- developers. Yeah. Versus the fact you are making a game for, but hopefully a much wider audience, right? Uh, and I remember, like when I was talking to to, to Dorian Newcomb, uh, you know, a few a few weeks ago, he said that he always sort of viewed his job as sort of push back against you a little bit, and and sort of remind you that no, this has to this has to read right, this has to be clear to people coming into it cold because he, he, so he sort of said that your instinct and what you tend to pay attention to the most is the people who play the hell out of the game, that you, you, you ter- sort of adopt a, a hardcore mindset when, when you're designing a game. And I'm, I'm curious uh, how, you, how you approach that.
1: Yeah, well, um, I mean, I've, I've, Darkest Dungeon is an interesting one to think about because um, they had kind Of a much rougher ride on early access, uh, that we have. Um, and part of that because could be, you know, is certainly about the fact that they they were a huge success right off the, the bat, so they had, you know, probably five times the number of players that we did, you know, which mm-hmm. means it's a lot more, a lot bigger of a community to, to handle and manage and feedback to wade through. Um, but also, um, yeah, I mean, they they made a lot of. Uh, gameplay changes that that ramped up the difficulty in ways that kind of surprised a lot of players um, and uh, i talked to tyler at gdc this year um and it um he kind of he's he's kind of come he's done a few circles or uh, in terms of like his how he views it and what he was saying now is like he was like you know i, I do now sort of like he does now sort of empathize with that position of someone bought the game you know february or january whatever it was of last year was enjoyed it for a few months and suddenly then they loaded it up and it was kind of like a game that felt significantly differently it was like much harder and not something that they were really prepared for um and you know he was was like well like imagine if like you bought a board game and you like really enjoyed it and then suddenly someone like snuck into your house and like changed a bunch of the parts and the rules and now suddenly you had this game that you didn't like so much right like Mm -hmm. like that's 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 tricky, right? like how do you how do you manage that when when I'll, on the other hand, of course, like, this is the the entire point of early access is to change stuff wi- while you're getting feedback from your players, right? so it's it's this amazing tension, and it's it's hard to know what to do about it. And I think that what he's supposed to say now is that he almost feels like he had like left basically the old versions of the game basically publicly available. So if there are people who are like, you know, I really just, I love that February 2015 version of the game, right? <laughs> like, just be like, okay, fine. We have a public branch that is that. If you want to play that, we'll no, we won't take that away from yeah. you because, because I just feel like, first of all, there's no reason to do that. Like, Steam lets you, I don't know if you have as many branches as you want, but like, it's basically a very simple thing to do on Steam. But, uh, you know, beyond that, like it is, there. there is a certain bit of consumer rights there in the sense of like, I had this game and now it's gone, right? Um, so... You know, I mean, they were they were making choices for the type of game they wanted to make, and that's that's what you should be able to do on early access. And I I'd be really worried if we get to this place where people are afraid to to change the game while it's up on early access, because mm-hmm. then at that point, like, what's what good is the entire process to begin with? Um, I I will say that we I think we're a little more careful about our changes in the sense that, um. First of all, I think we message them to get the community a lot. Uh, I mean, oh, for, let, me, let me back up for a second. I don't want to be, I'm not trying to make it. A- Direct comparison with their game. Yeah. Uh, because I wasn't. I don't know, think
0: comparison I, necessarily fits anyway, but.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't close enough with their process to know exactly how it worked. But I do know that for our game, what we did is when we had some big changes coming down the pike, like, for example, the stock market system, right? Like, that right. got changed completely. And we didn't just go from the way it originally worked to the way it worked now. We had a number of intermediate steps. Like, there was this one version where when you bought out another player, all their stuff just actually got destroyed. Like, it just vanished from the map. Um, and. So that's a good example because that that mode. What we did is we we've had this branch that's called next version, which has a password, so it's technically a private branch. But we've like posted the password all over the internet. Mm-hmm. So like if you want to get access to that version of the game, you can do it. You just have need to to look it up basically. Um, and that's a version of the game that we're updating constantly, like maybe a couple times a week even. Um, whereas the big the big updates. We've had basically ten of them, so you know, on average, we're basically doing them every five or six weeks, right? Um, so if we got this new feature coming, like this destroy buyout feature, um, you know, we tell the community about them, we tell the community about it, and like, hey, it's already available right now in next version, which means the hardcore can jump into it immediately, start playing it, start give us feedback, and the stakes are so much lower, right? Because they know this is just something we're messing with, right? Like. Because they're already going through this step of like accessing this new thing, um, they don't necessarily feel like we ruined the game they already have, right? They're seeing they're seeing like a glimpse into the future, right? And then even even then, once we released that in whatever it was, beta six or beta seven or whatever it was, if it was a if it was a big feature that I thought would cause some controversy, I almost always made it a, uh, a game option. Something that would be something that you would you would choose in the game setup and would usually default to to off, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe not It depends on how controversial I thought the feature would be, right? And um, so yeah, I think for Destroy Buyout, like well, here's this game option and it's going to default to off. So when the beta came out, the game basically looked the same to the casual player, but the hardcore players knew that this is something we're looking at, so they that they would play with it um, and. That that worked really well. One other thing we would do is usually after a beta came out, we would hold a tournament, and we would um, dictate that the rules for that tournament were you had to play with this new feature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime we would hold an official tournament, I mean that that's like that pulls out all of the most competitive people from our community, right? And so they're the ones who are going to basically really put the new features to their through the paces, right? And so like, you know, usually within a week or two we would know whether this this new idea was was good or bad. Right. Yeah. A
0: lot of us on this show have have sort of talked over the last year about like the fact that RTSs seem to be in a, a difficult place. Uh in part because of the reasons you described, right? They make tremendous tre- demands on the players. And a lot of them just aren't that much fun unless you can somehow handle all those, all those demands. I, I think what, what intrigues me here is, on, on the one hand, uh, you, you have Offworld that kind of operates with that split identity, right? That it just sort of, it, it, it takes the macro side of RTS and, and, and sort of does its own thing. It feels It feels like a board game, and that makes it much more approachable in a multiplayer setting, at the same time then you've also done all this stuff to make it uh satisfying if you're playing it by yourself, right? If you don't want to go and and get competitive uh c- competitive with it. So I I think like on the show a lot of times we we've, we've discussed this game, we focused on it in its in its multiplayer uh in, in, with multiplayer identity. And I do kind of wonder now like do you see this game as appealing to different sorts of, of players? Like, like you know, if 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 I'm someone who mostly plays RTSs alone by myself, and I'm, I'm mostly there to enjoy the game design, but I don't wanna don't want to go online and, and play ladder matches, for instance. Like, is is offworld is Offworld a game for me? Uh, the, you know, how much how much does that campaign offer? Uh, how much does that campaign its own offering versus an on ramp to multiplayer?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's why we built the campaign the way we did. I mean it, the campaign is really absolutely not a ramp to multiplayer, um, because I mean it's literally the, the game game functions functions so differently in the campaign than it does in the skirmish mode. So yeah, that's that's exactly the way I view the campaign. Is like I know there's going to be a lot of players out who just out there who just do not have interest in multiplayer, right? And So, you know, I think that, you know, those players, yeah, they could probably they could get off world and they could play it in skirmish mode and they, you know, they'd they'd have a good time. But like, you know, I don't think we'd be necessarily making a game that's amazing for them unless we really did carry through with a with a with a good campaign. Something that that fits that to me, like the right format is I'm kind of envisioning, you know, someone comes home from work and they want to spend a few hours, you know, with off world with and have this full arc of a game in single player. Right, so that's why I targeted something that's going to last, you know, two to three hours, right? Um, and then beyond that, something that's going to be very different each time, um, and you know, both from you choosing to choose a different, you know, you choosing to play a different C- CEO, and the game, you know, presenting you these different random options each time you go through it. So um, yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly the reason why we we made the campaign the way we did. Cool. Uh, so,
0: Soren, when does now? When exactly does this come out? Is it, is it already out? If if people are listening to this, uh, on you know on on Thursday the twenty eighth. Uh, what, what's what's the exact release date and what's the exact price?
1: Um, the yeah the game is coming out on the twenty eighth, um, and I guess I if as long as it's not coming out before the twenty eighth, I can go into like our, our uh, pricing for it, which is uh, the the base price of the game is forty dollars, but it's going to be twenty five percent off. Um, for the first couple of weeks, um, but we also have a a, a deluxe edition that's sixty dollars, but is going to be thirty three percent off for those first couple of weeks, and that includes it includes the soundtrack, it includes a bunch of a bunch of um, real maps um, that that are uh, that have been custom made from Mars uh, that get used in the campaign, and I think really improve the experience there. But perhaps most importantly, it also it, that also includes a second key, so basically during those first two months you can you can buy the deluxe edition for forty dollars and basically get a copy for yourself and a copy for a friend um so i think that's a really good option if you want to uh bring someone else into the game with you um and and yeah it'll launches uh 28th at i think 1 p.m eastern time cool
0: all right well soren good luck and thank you so much for being on the show again all right cool thanks a lot rob